0: Let's hack the process together. A lot of people think of a co working arrangement as renting a desk when you can't work anywhere else. But Alex Hillman, the founder of Indy Hall, sees it as an opportunity to build a community and maybe even help define the future of professional relationships both in and out of physical space. In this episode, Alex will tell us how the loneliness of freelancing drove him to start looking for alternatives to working in isolation, what it takes to train a team to nurture solid connections. And how a third grade experience with fish sticks got him started down the path toward changing the world one relationship at a time. Today, I'm talking with Alex Hillman, and he is uh, the founder of a community-driven co-working space in Philadelphia called Indie Hall. Alex, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great, David. Thank you for having me on the show.
0: Oh, I'm really glad to have you here. Uh, one of the things that fascinated me about what you were doing with uh, with Indie Hall was the way that you focused on community first and then built out the co-working space to support that.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think it's one of the things that, you know, I was talking with somebody this morning about a project that he's doing here in Philadelphia, actually a bike tour to take people that are not from Philadelphia to see a couple of the things that he would highlight as examples of independent work and creativity in Philadelphia. And he said something funny to me. And it was, you know, I don't even think of you guys at Indy Hall as a co-working space. And I didn't really know how to feel about that. Um, He meant it absolutely as a compliment. Um, But it's interesting that co-working has turned into this sort of worldwide phenomenon, which I'm really excited to be able to be a part of in general and to have played a very small role in more people being aware of what co-working is. And I, maybe we should start there before we even you know, get into my own story for the folks that aren't familiar with co-working. Um,
0: Absolutely. I, I'd be curious, how, how, you, how do you encapsulate the concept of co-working for people who who might, you know, they're used to full-time employment, they're used to going to a company, they work in an office with people. What, what is the co-working concept?
1: Today, in 2016, the word co-working is about as specific as the word restaurant which is to say it's not very specific at all. You've got a vague idea of what you get for what you have to put into it. But even with a restaurant, you have, you know, fast food through fine dining and everything in between. Uh, You've got, All different price ranges. You've got all different cuisines. Some are going to be, you know, drive-through versus an eight-hour sit-down, eight-hour meal. Gosh, that would be amazing. A four-hour, three-hour, whatever it is. A multi-course meal. All of those things are still technically restaurant experiences, but you need a little more information to understand what you're getting yourself into, and different people want different things, and even within the same person, you want different things at different times. I both eat at Wendy's and at fancy fine dining restaurants. I like both for different reasons. And so, to talk about co-working, I think it helps to talk about the the kind of co-working that we do—community-led, community-first—and um, and I think that's probably the most uh, the most important part of what we do. But also, sort of confuses people sometimes. They say, "Well, what does that actually mean?" So, the reason that Indy Hall is, I would say, different and and not unique in the world, but unique in a category unto itself is that many people, if you've heard of coworking, you think of it as a place to go work when you don't have an office, right? It's a place where you can go rent a desk instead of renting an office of your own, which sometimes costs more than you need, or you maybe don't even need an office every day. A co-working space is viewed as a sort of pay by the smaller unit, whether that's by the hour, by the day, by the week, a few days a week. Uh, and a lot of times people have replaced the word renter with member and sort of paying rent with membership. And that's sort of the, I would categorize that as sort of the fast food definition of what co-working is and can be. And it's a good introduction, but I think what's important to understand about where I think co-working is today and where it can lead us to is it's less about needing a desk. Because the truth is, is most of the people that are working in co-working spaces, wherever they are, aren't lacking for a place they can work i mean i can work from uh, uh, my dining room table i can work from my couch i can work from the cafe down the street i can choose where i work the issue is is that all those places that i can go work are not fulfilling in some way and the, some way in my mind and in my experience and in the the effort that i've worked to build has been the other people and so, for me, coworking is a lot less about renting a desk, and a lot more about being connected to other people, and being connected to other people who you wouldn't otherwise be connected to, and and I think that's a really important framing for for any other examples and stories that I can give you, and sort of why Indie Hall is community first. I guess to to distinguish it in a very concrete way. Indie Hall existed for an entire year before there was even a physical space. There was no lease, there was no address, and for most of those 12 months, we weren't even looking for addresses. This was community building from the ground up. This was me going out and seeking out my people, my community, uh, my tribe, however you'd want to describe that.
0: Now, that's interesting, because what I wanted to ask you was how how this idea occurred to you. You've clearly given this a lot of thought, and I think you've come to uh, a mature definition in your own mind of of how you view Indie Hall in the context of co-working. But how did this start for you?
1: You know, regardless of what industries you work in, uh, if you've worked in more than one place, more than one team, even within one company, different teams, every group of people has got a different culture, right? There's a different sense of how people communicate with each other, how they take care of each other, how they support one another, or on the negative side how they don't do any of those things and I look at something like culture as really the sum uh, uh, or an equation, some sum and multipliers of all of the relationships and interactions between the people in a group of people and I, I look at the root from my own direction into co-working as sort of the sweet spot between two working experiences that I had before I went out on my own to become a freelancer. One was for, um, I was still, uh, I was a a co-op at the university that I went to, so I was still a student. I was very young in my career. I was my first break into web development. I had never written any code before that, Uh, and I... Found my way into a job, mostly not because I was really interested in the work. I was curious about the work, but I was really interested in the people and the way this team seemed to work together. Because the previous job I had was working for a bank in IT and everybody hated each other. So just that juxtaposition right there where it was work that I thought I was going to love, but I ended up hating because everybody was at each other's throats versus a type of work that I thought I wasn't going to like, but I was interested in the work environment because the people and the way they interacted with each other was so starkly contrast and also felt more like, more like some of the family and, and community experiences I had growing up where people actually cared. People knew who each other were. Um, and the, the sweet spot between those two experiences... I think, is is where Indie Hall comes from. Uh, when I quit that job that did have a great community and a great culture, and it's weird to use the word community to describe a workplace, and I don't think it's really necessarily accurate because those people are all there because they're there for a job. Um, there are certainly communities that exist within a workplace, but... I think it's, it's sort of uh, trite these days to refer to any group of people as a community, and many workplaces, um, you know, the employers, the management would love to refer to their, their family their community, and so few
0: places are actually like that, right? I'm very fond of the word community myself. My my own background in education was anthropology and sociology. So when I see the way that people interact as a team working together to try to accomplish a unified goal and establish their pecking orders and establish the hierarchy that's independent of the organizational hierarchy, the word community really feels very valid. I
1: agree completely. And what you just said there in particular was that what what happens when you sort of break down the positional power into – how people actually help each other like it's and it's interaction dependent it's not scoped to the business relationship it's not scoped even to the project it could be scoped to the meeting or the moment uh it just comes down to how you pay attention to each other
0: it's also absolutely not something that can be controlled from a top-down perspective. Hundred
1: percent agreed. So, so I had this amazing experience working for this company, and I sort of got to. Exp- it was my first time experiencing sort of the rise and fall of a corporation from the inside, where companies started very small and its culture was very, uh, was very supportive, and the company was still very nimble. And I, while they were there, I went from went from sixty to one hundred and sixty employees in about nine months, which is not like. Massive growth, but it's big enough to for, for things to start to break down, and and when I I left, and there was a couple of steps in between me leaving and me going out on my own. Um, but when I did go out on my own, the biggest thing that I realized I was missing from the experience was coworkers. Going out and becoming freelance for me, and I think for a lot of people, is this choice to be independent, this choice to pursue my own thing, to make, to be in control of my own choices when I work, who I work with, uh, and all of those sorts of things. And all of that was awesome. I got what I wanted. I got to work on projects I cared about with clients that I actually enjoyed, with collaborators that I really enjoyed working with and I learned things from, but... Having sort of the social infrastructure of the workplace be absent because I was working at home in my underwear for free <laughs> uh, was a noticeable was a noticeable pain for me, and I started seeking not workplace and coworking was a very nascent concept and I knew of it through a couple of the connections I'd made professionally, but there was nothing like it really outside of the Bay Area then, and I wasn't. It wasn't that I was motivated to open a co-working space. It was that I was motivated to find this cluster of people that if I I looked in my own backyard in Philadelphia and I said, where are my people? I can go online to cities that I'm not physically in and find my people easier than I can find them in my own backyard. That frustration is what drove me to want to create that social infrastructure and then once that social infrastructure was built and i say social infrastructure is the most clinical way of saying i found friends (laughs) right that's what we're really talking about i built relationships i got to know people who i actually wanted to spend time with and then when they also wanted to spend time with each other and me the notion of a clubhouse of some sort started to materialize and started to make a whole lot of sense in a very different way than needing a
0: place to go to work Wow how how did how did you make that transition from I've got no idea where my peeps are to these are some people I could call friends did you did you bring people from your previous work uh culture and communities that you'd been a part of it was it was a
1: mix of both and you know I think the the number like the very first step for community building when I'm helping somebody who's basically in my shoes 10 years ago looking out across the the landscape in front of them and going I feel totally alone where are my people I remind them that your people are there. They are probably looking for you as well. The difference is, is you've got to tune your ears. You've got to put in a little bit more work than the average person. And, you know, where some people would say, well, go out and network. Um, You know, I know the word network puts, uh, you know, puts some people into different emotional states, um, you know, and, and it feels very transactional. I used Everything I had, whether it was those friendships and relationships that I had from previous employers, I would use the internet. And we're talking internet 2005, 2006, right? So social networks at the time were were like MySpace was still the biggie. Uh, Facebook was not really used widely yet. Uh, Things like meetup.com were really barely existent outside of New York City. There were, there was like, there was not a lot of what we would today call social media or online communities that were location specific. Today, you can type city name meetup and find not just meetup.com, but so many places online and offline to find people in your city. I didn't have that. It was more of a fragmented constellation of things. But the reality is the answer to your question, where did I find it? Anywhere I could. And I would use anything I found to find more. So I would find a user group or a meetup or a happy hour or something, and I would go to it. And I would go with the express goal not to meet as many people as possible. I think this is the key here. My goal was to have one really awesome conversation. And there's something really interesting and counterintuitive about that. And I experience this now when I go to conferences, and you know, uh, for whatever reason, whether it's because I'm a speaker or um, or whatever it is, you know, my attention is in demand at that event, and it is tempting to want to try and hit, sort of be the little bee flying from flower to flower to flower and flower to flower, and that's how a lot of people network. I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but for my goal, which was deep connections. It wasn't going to get me that. So I had to find a person, find a hook into a conversation that was going to take us into something meaningful. And my goal was to find the conversation that at the end of the night or at the end of the conversation, the next step was or the next thought was, I would love to pick this up where we left off. We, we need to keep doing this.
0: It feels to me like it's something that you've given some some thought to in terms of how you bring out people in, in conversation as well. This isn't something – That a lot of people are automatically good at. Is this a skill that you feel like you actively developed for yourself? So
1: it's something that is a combination of my own instincts, intuitions, as well as, as you've said, definitely a lot of reflection, as well as my ability to talk about it. Like I can sit here with a lot of hindsight and self-analysis and self-awareness and say, this is what I did and here's why I think it worked. And then what I do is I recycle that back in and I practice it more and I go, does it get better or do I make it worse? Um, Because I'm like doing this weird, like stilted version. But also I have a team. Right. I, I have a team now that ultimately their job is to do the same kinds of things I was doing by instinct early on uh, and and do that with every new person who walks through the door of Indie Hall. To, how do you teach someone how to have a genuine conversation? And I've had to sort of reverse engineer my, my gut instincts. Um, and I said before, like, I think there are some communities that I was involved in early on that very much colored my goals and my values. And I can also think of a couple of specific influences that made me comfortable asking certain kinds of questions or speaking out in certain kinds of ways. Um, one, one pair of people in particular, uh, their names are Chris Messina and Tara Hunt. Uh, Tara uh, is well known for early, really early contributions in the world of what eventually became social media uh, and really online communities. Tara is, I think, one of the world's leading experts in what online communities really are and can be. And the things that have sort of come to the forefront more recently in terms of trends and patterns for successful online communities, Tara was teaching and consulting with Bay Area companies 15 years ago um so she was definitely ahead of her time on that and then her partner uh, at, at the time when when i met them uh, a decade and change ago chris messina uh, if you've known chris messina's name it might be because he invented the hashtag um for better or for worse um and, and again, another sort of luminary of the Bay Area, but someone who's always thinking about how people interact with each other and how to design for those interactions. So I learned a ton early in my career from those two very much mentors and some of my, my, my dearest friends in the world um, in terms of that influence. But the other component, instead of just teaching me those patterns, I also watched Chris and Tara, you know, sort of be heretics in their own field. They were often counter perspectives to a mainstream perspective. And a lot of times I had an instinct or an idea locked up in my head, but I was afraid to say it out loud because I wasn't sure how people were going to react. And it wasn't anything like truly heretical, and it wasn't anything that I was really all that controversial, but when you have an opinion that is adjacent to the mainstream, the instinct is is I should probably keep my mouth shut unless I want to stir up trouble, right? Uh, for for some people, not all people, um, and and it's not even just to play it safe. It's the I'm not sure what other people are gonna think, and I watched Chris and Tara speak out thoughtfully, not just like blah out into the world. This is what I think, but like speak out thoughtfully and 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 with consideration, and a not be torn down just for speaking out and saying something different, um, but actually be rewarded for it, and realize that the value of unique perspective. Even though, you know, in the time I was young in my career, I was young in my life, I was in my early 20s. Like, I'm finding myself in these professional situations where I'm like, well, what do I have to give? Like, what do I have to say? And I sort of realized that everyone has something to say. If you're willing to be thoughtful about it and if you're willing to listen as much or more than you're saying, right, then there's no reason why someone, other than to tear you down, and plenty of people are going to respond simply to tear you down. I had to learn sort of over time how to tell the difference between somebody who is sort of debating for the sake of debate uh, or, or for the sake of, of just being a troll versus someone who is disagreeing from their own unique point of view, in which case maybe from their unique point of view and my unique point of view combined, we can come up with a perspective that's even better than either of us would have found entirely. So these are all like evolutions of of my own practice in I mean, you ask, like, what's the skill? Like, what's the thing you can practice? It's listening. Like, everything I've gotten good at communicating is the result of listening, like, 10 times or 100 times more than I'm speaking.
0: It sounds to me like the, uh, the the willingness to bring out an idea that is, you know, tangential or, you know, goes in the opposite direction to the way people are thinking. And being willing to be wrong is probably a big part of that as well.
1: I I like to think that that... I mean, wrongness is relative, right? You're wrong in the moment. And if you recognize you're wrong, you can be right later. And also, like, it's not about being right. Like, I don't have a motivation to be right. I have a motivation to get things done in the world. And if I was motivated to be right, I wouldn't get anything done in the world. So, you know, one of the reasons I think Indie Hall has been so successful as both a co-working space and a business and and, I mean, as a community, all of those things, and they're sort of intertwined in all kinds of interesting and potentially complicated ways that we manage to keep simple is because I don't have a predestined idea of what Indie Hall needs to be. I have a North Star, and that North Star is a combination of what I care about plus what the other people that I've surrounded myself with care about, and the North Star is even allowed to move. But we have to talk about it if it moves. That's the only key. And so long as I feel like most of my time is spent reminding people where the North Star is. Like, this is the goal, right? We agreed that this is the common goal uh, and that our approach to it is going to be maybe not identical, but similar enough because we share values that I can trust you to just do what it is that you think is right instead of trying to get you to replicate what I would do. Um, If I made my mission to get 350, 400 people to do what I do every day, I would have lost a long time ago. So instead, I make it my mission to gather people who have a similar North Star, be there, you know, to encourage them and remind them of what that North Star is. And just not not just me encourage them, but to sort of build that network effect of people encouraging each other and reminding each other of what makes their work worth doing, what makes their day worth living, what makes their um, uh, participation in our community worth participating. Um, cause it.
0: It sounds like the fundamental definition of leadership, where you're you're creating the vision and um, allowing people to enact that vision according to their own techniques, beliefs, and standards.
1: And there's sort of like a feedback loop, right? Because that that vision that I bring to the table, whatever that is, uh, is is based on effectively some version of research. It's based on that listening. So it's it's sort of originally anchored in my original goal of to be surrounded by professional and community peers that hasn't gone away, but guess what? I've got it. And so along the way, my goal has had to evolve and my goal has had to involve more people. And so the goal becomes larger. Um, One of the the, um, sort of metaphors for this or, examples I suppose that I I like to reference and it's borrowed from uh, Simon Sinek who's written, uh, you know, he's got uh, Start With Why. It was, his, uh, it was like a TED Talk that turned into a book and a movement and all these other things. And he has a more recent book called Leaders Eat Last that's a little more about the neuroscience behind uh, uh, human interactions and, and leadership that I, I highly recommend. Um, but he, he talked about, uh, you know, the, the – uh, and, and this is a, a, a sort of a strange example, but the founding of the United States of America – you know, 200 plus years ago was founded on a pretty simple principle, not an easy to do one, but a simple one, which was equality for all. Now, it didn't actually mean for all at the beginning. It meant all so long as you look like us. And over the last 200 plus years, the definition of all has been pushed very hard to evolve and we still have a way to go. But I think that way to go is why that goal at the beginning was the right goal. It's a goal that people have been working on for generations and generations and can continue to work on. And a goal like that will continue bringing us together for the long term and it'll take evolution it'll take additional generations worth of effort so when i think about the goal of Indy hall which originally was as i said before very self-serving where is alex's tribe into something that is about making our community and our region better making and even beyond that as i'm watching philadelphia flourish i'm thinking on a larger scale will say well i want to make the world better for anyone who works in a place with other people right because that encompasses a lot of people and I will never actually affect a hundred percent of those people in my lifetime but if I think about it even today the number of people in the world who could ever work in a co-working space, forget indie Hall and even if I was willing to use the restaurant scale definition of co-working to include things that are pretty far far afield compared to indie hall, you know, stuff that's more like renting desks, the number of people that will work in a co-working space ever is a tiny percentage of the entire planet. Tiny, 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 tiny for many, many, many reasons. And that percentage will get bigger, but will never become the majority. I don't, I don't see that any time in, in generations to come. Now, what I do believe is that places like Indy Hall can serve as laboratories for understanding how people work together, why they work together, Uh, and and what we can learn from the facilitation of people who don't have to work together but choose to versus all of the organizations in the world, all the groups of people who need to work together but they don't. And so if I think of the white space between those two things, people who need to work together but they don't, people who don't need to work together but they do, the white space between those two pillars is where I play every day and understanding how to narrow that gap is where I play every day. And so looking at what we do and saying, okay, here's – how people work together really well let me figure out how i can translate it into something teachable to you know small growing teams so that they may be more resilient as they grow and that's how i think i think that we're doing at indie hall and the work that we're doing with co-working in general outlasts co-working spaces outlasts like th- physical place needs right now because Who knows in another 10, 20, 50 years, there's going to be so – I mean the number of things that have changed just in the last 10 and 20 years, if I go another 10 or 20 years in the future, the idea that we're still going to need places to sit with our laptops like this, I would be very surprised if Indie Hall looks like it does today in another 20 years. Parts of it might, but I think that will – shrink as a percentage, even if the, even if we still run a 10,000 square foot shared workspace for a, for a community or as part part of that community can run, I think the number of ways that Indy Hall will bring our community together other than sharing desks, that percentage will grow much, 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 much larger. So, uh, so the, so the general ratio of co-working as part of what we do will shrink, uh,
0: as a result. I I think things are evolving dramatically. And, you know, if you go back you're looking at you started this around 2005 when you were looking for your tribe and you could find it online, but that wasn't viable. And I think today the opportunities for uh, remote co-working situations and, and remote teams, uh, the tools and technologies and the, the comfort that people have with the technology and how it integrates into the workplace make uh, completely new models of co-working and, and co-community development impossible.
1: New new models, new possibilities. And at the same time, what's interesting is, you know, we're still learning how to do a good job of facilitating the thing that we do in a physical place. And we're learning that it's a lot harder than people think to do a good job. It takes work and it takes a practice like everything we've talked about so far. So being intentional about it matters. And I think online stuff is just the same. It's just it's a lot of the same patterns translated to new tools. Um, we learned that in a very very real way a couple of weeks ago. We hosted an online, 100% virtual conference, and that's something that just a few years ago I would not have considered trying. But the tools have gotten good. Things like Crowdcast for uh, video broadcast uh, and really designed for a sort of conference type setting, as well as Slack for group chat and sort of that hallway of banter and things like that. Those tools allowed for us to do things in an online space during a 24-hour period that were not possible two years ago. And the tools are a big part of the equation. But when we sat down and said, okay, what are the parts of a conference offline in the real world, whether it's in a tiny little venue around the corner or a big convention center or anywhere in between, What are the elements of that event and that experience that create value for people that make it memorable and meaningful and valuable? And how can we take those memorable, meaningful, valuable components and how can we create them natively online? So it's not about creating a conference and broadcasting it to the internet. It's about creating a conference experience on the internet and using the internet as our gathering place. And Indie Hall has given us a tremendous amount of experience to experiment and play with creating place online. And it's not the same. It's not a replacement. That's not the goal. But it was amazing to be able to bring a hundred plus people together online for a 24 hour period from all over the world. The vast majority of whom had never met each other before and would not have had a chance to meet each other with the depth of connection that they had. And one of the coolest parts of feedback we got back after the event and people loved the talks and our speakers were amazing. And I'm so proud of what we put together. The thing I'm most proud of is that people who joined with the most skepticism of whether or not an online conference could actually create a conference-like vibe replied and said, I was skeptical, but you blew me away. This is clearly... Uh, this gives me a clue of what is actually possible, and we were we were just experimenting. We I mean, we could do so much more. and There's so much more we're going to get better at. But you know, place. If you think about place instead of space, and realize that place is you know temporal, physical, virtual, all of those things. All it takes is defining you know an amount of time. You know, this 40 minutes for you and I to be connected on a Google Hangout. There is a place on the internet where you and I are interacting right now. That's really cool. I think it's really easy to take that for granted and underestimate it. And if you think the same way as you would, you go into these kinds of interactions with the same kind of intention that you can with offline interactions, you've got to adapt it. You've got to make use of the constraints uh, as well as the new tools. But it's absolutely possible to create online communities that are just as vibrant, I think, in some ways as it's their offline counterparts. Um, and, and, to, and for Indie Hall as an example, I, I mean, we have three distinct gathering places. There's the physical co-working space in, in Old City, Philadelphia. And then we have two different online communities. We've got sort of the low-gear discussion list version and we've got the high-gear Slack chat version. And they require different amounts of attention uh, and, and different amounts of of activity in order to stay interesting and valuable. But they both, in addition to the physical space, Uh, sort of act as independent gathering places. And there's crossover. Some people participate in all three, although it's the vast minority. Most people participate in one or the other, uh, in, in, in two, and some people just participate in one. And over time, where they spend the majority of their time changes. So someone might start online then spend more time physically at indie hall and then something will change in their life they'll go back to online but maybe it'll be a different version of the online community so you know there's not only one way to participate in a community participation is not a binary thing and it goes back to that listening thing and understanding what are the different ways that people even want to participate rather than trying to force them to participate in the one way that you've imagined is possible
0: i think people are going to be really interested in learning more about how you put together this online conference this this uh this non-physical virtual space that uh, brought out these skeptics and made them believers in the value of that kind of thing. And I know one of the things that you've made a point of in your own career is taking the things you've learned and then, Passing it along and teaching it to other people. I'm curious if you're going to be doing that with your online conference. Planning. Oh,
1: yeah, absolutely. I'm so excited, actually, that we've spent the last three weeks doing uh, sort of the, the decompress. And one of the things that we sold with an online conference as well as sort of an upgrade ticket, uh, which is, again, use the constraints you have to create new things by virtue of doing an online conference, everything's automatically recorded. So we decided to do some cool things with the recordings. So we're making the recordings available as it was part of an upgrade ticket, but instead of just buying the videos, because, I mean, that's nice, but we wanted to really give people something amazing. And the thing we, gave, we decided to do is we sat down and as a team, re, we rewatched all the talks and we took notes on all the talks. And so the downloadable summit is the videos Along with them is basically a 40-page cheat sheet of all of the talks, the best takeaways, the best quotes...
0: Let me just pause for a moment on that term, 40-page cheat sheet.
1: <laughs> but think about it. I mean, a 40-page cheat sheet versus, like, the better part of 10 hours worth of video. For, I mean, you're right. It is a, it's a mini book unto itself. Um, but doing stuff like that to really try and get the, get the most and help people get the most out of this, I think, makes a, makes a big difference.
0: One of the challenges I know a lot of people have is gathering valid feedback and really evaluating what was useful for an audience and what wasn't. What What techniques are you using for that?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, people, there's all different kinds of things. And I mean, I default to observation and just paying attention, paying a lot of attention into what people are doing and are not doing uh, during and after the event. But we obviously have to prompt people for some feedback and asking for feedback is always dangerous. You have to ask the right kinds of questions. And so uh, with events like this, I like to focus my questions on a couple of very specific things. Uh, The first question we asked was, why did you choose to sign up for this event in the first place? What drew you to this? What did you think you were going to get out of it? What did you hope you were going to get out of it? Uh, And we got a range of answers to that. Um, Depends on how well that person sort of knew knew us and our body of work. But we did reach beyond who we already knew. And I think those people gave us some of the most interesting feedback because they weren't just saying... I like you. I know what you do. It's good stuff. Um, they had things, a lot of things like I knew I wasn't going to make it to a conference this year. And I saw an opportunity to participate in something that, you know, maybe would satisfy that desire to be connected with other people. So that was really valuable feedback to hear and, and sort of aligns with some of the things that we expect. And even I would say accentuates them. Uh, the next question that we asked was what were, what was an, an, a highlight or takeaway for you? You know, one or two things that you learned the most from, And what was interesting what we got back from that is we got a sense of patterns, not just in what people's favorite talks were, but what the kinds of talks that people responded to most were. So I think our our talks going forward are going to continue to be very framework oriented, um, very almost like little consulting sessions unto themselves that help address a problem that you might be having. Uh, And that was really, really helpful for us to be hearing. Um, And then the last question we asked was, is there something that you would have liked us to talk about that maybe we missed? Uh, which is a nice way of saying, you know, is there any way we let you down? Um, and it was it was valuable to get some constructive criticism, but it framed the question in a way where we made it clear that we were accepting constructive criticism. And it was specific topics that people want to know about. It was specific ways and interactions that we knew from the way things were going in the chat room where we had made a bad call and we're going to have to change it in the future. But just to have somebody articulate it in their own words and even offer up a suggestion for how to make it better. Um, And it's all about uh, giving somebody – if you give somebody a blank text box and ask them a vague enough question, they're going to spew nonsense into it because that is the default result of that. But if you ask somebody a pointed question and you sort of make it clear what kind of responses are valuable to you – I'm consistently impressed with the stuff that people are willing to put in and really think through. Um, and I think it also comes down to we clearly thought through our questions. And I think people respond well, not everybody, but enough people respond well to if you're thoughtful enough to ask that question, I'm going to be thoughtful enough to answer it that way. And that, that's worked really well for us.
0: It's clear that you put a lot of, a lot of thought and intention into the things that you do, and uh, do you do you get coaching? Do you have people who are guiding you? Do you have counseling? How how does this uh, come about for you? Now,
1: I've had a couple of mentors in my life um, that I, I think whether they were not people who like necessarily knew they were my mentors, um, but they're people who I watched lead and communicate in a certain way. And it's not like I was even being a mentee intentionally either. I was just learning and observing. I like i said if there's an if there's a natural skill that i have but is also very practicable to to earn and i i know it's practicable because i wasn't good at it to start i may have had an aptitude for it but i I've, I've had to work at it to be as good at it as i am and i'm always getting better it's paying attention and you know you know there's all all different kinds of ways to wrap that up into you know empathy and emotional intelligence um you know i I don't I don't know what the environmental components were that made me the way that I am. I've got a handful of stories that I'm sure, uh, you know, actually, the, the right person to ask is probably my parents or any of my grade school teachers, because I'm sure I make a lot more sense to them than I do to anybody else, including myself. Um, but I've always been sort of OK doing my own thing. And I don't know where that confidence comes from. Maybe a bit my parents. Actually, I'm thinking about it in this conversation. Like, my dad's been, my dad's like independent to a fault. Like, my dad could, I mean, and I'm approaching that way as well. Like, my dad could not work for somebody else. It's just like, not in his DNA. And I think I watched that in my dad. And my dad probably rubbed off on me more than I realized in that sense. Um, He's sort of an entrepreneur for life. And, and I think my dad in the very classic sense of an entrepreneur, where like my dad knows how to do work for a living and he does work that he loves for clients who love his work, and he doesn't have to advertise it's all word of mouth because he does good work and asks for people to talk about him um you know things like that are probably among some of the the biggest influences. I was also and, and again i don't I don't know where this comes from, uh but I was like pretty defiant. As, as a kid, I was definitely a troublemaker. And I remember the, some encouragement from my parents. To, to It was okay to be a troublemaker as long as I was trying to be productive. And my mom reminded me of a story recently that I had completely forgotten about. And I, I had forgotten about it again until I sort of went down this, this tangent. And it's that um, in third grade, I came home from school one day and complained to my mom that the fish sticks in the cafeteria were disgusting. So, these are not fish sticks. They're disgusting. I know what fish sticks are. The fish sticks that we get from the Schwann's truck, those are fish sticks. Those are good. These, mushy, gross. And my mom said, write a letter. And third grade me said, okay. And so I wrote, uh, I wrote a, a, a little letter to, I don't remember if it was the lunch ladies or the principal. I don't even remember who it was to. And then I showed it to my mom and she goes, this is good. You should get your classmates to sign it. I my mean, mom basically taught me how to petition. <laughs> And so I got a bunch of my, like, at recess, I'm like, the fish sticks are bad, right? And, yeah, and sign it. And so I, third grade Alex goes to the principal with a signed petition to get rid of the fish sticks. And they were like, okay, uh, sure, I guess. Um, so, you know, maybe having some civically minded parents that were able to show me this opportunity, instead of whining about it, go do something about it. Um, and... You know, the the adults in my life probably had no idea what to do with me, Um, or I know they had no idea what to do with me. Um, but I think it's things like that and probably some confidence instilled in me for my parents to speak up uh, for what you think is is right and for what you think uh, is good and not necessarily for what you want. Um, although that's allowed. It's like I wanted the fish sticks to be better, but I want to be better like because they were bad for everybody. <laughs> like this is a, like this is a third grade travesty that the fish sticks are mushy. Um, and that was the biggest problem I had in my life. But. You know, I think I think about that experience and I think about today and sort of what Indy Hall represents and and, and the community that I, I've spent the last 10 years a part of and, and building. And it comes from the same place in my heart, really, where it's like, I don't just want this better for me. I want this better for all of us. And I know that the best way to make it better for all of us is for us to actually agree on that goal and work towards it together in small incremental steps over a potentially infinite timeline. So maybe the fish sticks had a bigger role in my life than I realized. I didn't think about it till just now.
0: It sounds like your mother and her influence is a, is a significant part of it as well. So your father's entrepreneurial spirit, your mother's political organizing, and the result is an Alex Hillman. Thanks, guys. I appreciate you. <laughs> so one of the things I, I wanted to find out from you is what what is your routine like? How do you how do you structure your day? Given that you're you're working independently and basically leading your own organization.
1: So that is one of the hardest questions to answer, but I'll try because my day is you know to a degree it's organized chaos and and it's another one of those things where i say like do not necessarily do what i do i do what i do because it works for me and in fact it makes me really happy any given day i'm working on multiple different businesses projects and it's very rare for me to make it from the beginning of the day to the end of the day and only touch one thing but that's part of what makes me happy. That's a workflow that really, really works for me. And it doesn't work for everybody, including people within my own team. So I appreciate that that is sort of weird for me. Um, a routine that I've I've been working on in the last year, though, to introduce a little bit of structure into that chaos is, uh, is establishing some basic daily goals. Because if I don't decide what I'm going to do that day, there's a good chance that nothing will get done because there's always something to do, right? Some things will always pop up. And so, you know, one of the things that we started doing, I do this myself and then we also do this as a team and we do it in public in front of the Indie Hall community in a Slack channel called Daily Goals. So the night before, I will uh, pull up, I use day one as my my little spark file notepad on my phone and my menu bar and I'll jot down a couple of things I want to get done the next day. So this is my end of day ritual, whether it's the end of the workday or when I'm laying in bed before I go to sleep, like what am I going to do tomorrow? What are the things that need to be done tomorrow? What are the things that I need to accomplish? And being specific enough in that there are things that can actually be done tomorrow. Not I need to work on a thing that will take me all week, but here's a smaller part of that that I can actually finish tomorrow or in a window of tomorrow's day. Try and get really specific about that. And in the morning, I share that list in the Daily Goal Slack channel, and then so do other people. And throughout the day, as we do those things, we add a little emoji Uh, next to it sort of in some we started with emoji checkboxes then we realized why just use an emoji checkbox when there's a bajillion other emojis we can use that sort of adds a little fun fun to uh, uh, the crossing off of the task list item Um, and and part of the way I think about that also is that step in a very subtle way sort of forces me to think about what of the things that I'm working on I'm working towards so I might not touch all of the projects or businesses in one day and some days maybe be Indie Hall heavy and, you know, 30 by 500 light. Some days maybe 30 by 100 heavy, no Indie Hall, but I'm working on, uh, I'm, I'm working on group buzz or another project, whatever it might be, um, by forcing myself to sort of say it out loud, it just brings a little bit more awareness to what I'm doing. There's something a little bit meditative to it in a way. Um, and that's been, that's the most structure that I've, I feel like I've been able to introduce into an otherwise chaotic environment. Now, the other thing is, is I'm allowed to, uh, to not do that. Right. So some days I wake up and I'm like, ah, I don't know how my day is going to go. And that's okay too. Like that is the benefit of still being independent. Now I do have people that depend on me. I've got an amazing team, uh, and I have amazing teammates actually in all of the businesses that I work on. So I can't just like screw off because I feel like it and have that negatively impact somebody else. So if I'm making the intentional choice to screw off for the day or to change, my, to change my decision halfway through, that's fine. But I need to, A, proactively communicate that to the people that depend on me and make sure that that's not going to affect them in some sort of negative way. So it goes back to that consideration for other people. Um, but I like a day that lets me be sort of uh, sort of uh, responsive to, to what's going on and at the same time feel like I'm accomplishing things throughout, uh, throughout
0: the day. And can you remind folks again how they can find you and your, and your information?
1: Absolutely. Uh, uh, I'm on Twitter, at Alex Hillman, H-I-L-L-M-A-N. Uh, my blog is DangerouslyAwesome.com. That is where I do the majority of the sort of long-form writing. Uh, newsletter, if you don't want to sit there and refresh, DangerouslyAwesome.com is at Coworking Weekly. Uh, if you're into the podcast thing, I have a podcast as well, Coworking Weekly Show. Uh, you can search that in iTunes. That's there. Uh, and something, just a sort of sneak preview that we've got coming up that uh, another reason maybe to jump on the newsletter uh, if some of that origin story of sort of how Indy Hall went from me being sort of Mr. Lonely Heart in my own uh, in my own apartment bedroom working for myself and by myself into, this, uh, into a burgeoning community, I feel like there's people in cities and neighborhoods all over the world who were like, yeah, I kind of wish there were people like me around. Um, we've recorded a little thing that we're calling the Indie Hallway, uh, and this is the Year One Indie Hallway, which is uh, I'm going to refer to it as a reverse audiobook. Normally, an audiobook is somebody reading the written word this is more of a narrative illustration of how to do what i did in the first year step by step in more detail than anything else i've put together and then we're having that transcribed and edited into an actual book so the audio book comes first the book comes second uh, and a couple of other goodies along the way but we'll be talking more about that in the next couple of weeks on the on the newsletter i'm super excited about it
0: Wow, a wealth of interesting information resources, and this has been really fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us on Hack the Process today. My
1: pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: Are you glad you listened to this episode of Hack the Process? Then take an action now. Make a note about something you just heard and how it's going to help you as you hack your own process. And let me know about it. This has been M. David Green, your host for Hack the Process. You can tweet me at Process. Leave a review for the show on iTunes, and visit hacktheprocess.com to check out the show notes for this episode, and join our community of process hackers. Thanks for listening.